All right. Welcome back to the DFI podcast where we go deep on Web3 infrastructure and use cases. Hey, Sean, great to chat with you again today. You're so excited to be doing this again. Feels like it's been a while. It has. We had a great chance to catch up in the lovely city of Palo Alto last week. At yeah, the SBC for, for all our listeners, Wes and I were both at SBC, which is stand for Blockchain Conference. And instead of doing a pod, we ended up just meeting in person and hanging out. Though I think at some point we were talked about doing a pod live as opposed to on, on uh, Zoom. So hopefully we can make that happen at some point. I love that idea. Yeah, either at a place like downtown uh, Palo Alto, there's also a lot of beautiful views in San Francisco along the river, maybe like yeah. the Carmel next time, something like yeah. that. We can get, we can get like a mobile, mobile recording studio going where they have like mics in front of you. <laughs> yes, I like with that. The, I like background. that on a golf course overlooking the ocean. Sounds like a plan. Very cool. Well, maybe the best place to start is just overall opinions. I mean, you got to see a lot of the conference that I didn't. You attended some interesting events mm-hmm. on Sunday, some things related to AI. What's, do you have any sort of high-level takeaways from your time yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, I didn't make it. I didn't actually make it to Stanford Blockchain Conference during the day, Monday through Wednesday, I think it was, was it? And so, but I did go to this really cool thing called Future of Decentralization AI and Computing Summit on, at Berkeley on Sunday, like the day before it started before Stanford Blockchain Conference started. And there were a lot of great technical talks there. Actually, in general, I thought the talks were fantastic. The group was really good. Met a bunch of people who were interested in in Web3 and AI and in Web3 and AI intersection. You know, there was a lot of stuff about like confidential computing, verify, you know, verifying compute, how to run, how to run AI models more efficiently, vir- vir- virtualization, all of these topics that I found super interesting. So overall, I thought the Berkeley conference was great. It was, I think it was like nine to five, basically, uh, full day. So we were there full day. And of course, for people who don't know, Berkeley has great food. So what, what actually happened at the conference is they ran out of vegetarian food. So I went to my favorite Thai restaurant in Berkeley, picked up food, brought it back to the conference. And I was eating in the area where they let people eat at the lobby or whatever. So they had pizza, salad, and sandwiches, but, but the line, I think they, more people showed up than they expected. And so the, the veggie food ran out. So I, I, it was actually a good, great for me because now then I didn't feel bad eating free food. I went and got delicious Berkeley Thai food. Uh, <laughs> That's really the way it should be anyways. I mean, honestly, <laughs> Berkeley, with their selection of like fresh, you know, vegetables and everything. I mean, isn't uh, French Laundry based out of Berkeley? Is that right? I, I think French Laundry is a little bit more north. Yeah, I don't actually know. I, I I don't think. Yeah, it's in like Yountville, or I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's a little bit more north than okay. Berkeley. Okay. But people up there, they appreciate good quality fresh food. So clearly you had yeah. some good options over pizza and salad. Okay, yeah. very good. The French Laundry is like north of Napa, basically. Oh, way up there. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. That makes sense. So what was the what was the environment? Were there a lot of sponsors? Were there a lot of booths? Was it more academic? Like we're just yeah, talking was, about papers. It was wrote? definitely more academic. So a lot of so we had you know there was a great talk from Google Research on how they use language models, small language models on the Gboard keyboard app, mm-hmm. right? So so that was great. And I'm talking about this is like a five million token model, whereas today you're seeing like multiple billion token model when we talk about large language models. We saw we saw stuff from Facebook research and then a lot of universities, right? I think Berkeley had a lot. 
obviously it's their conference. A lot of professors from Berkeley spoke. I think there was a professor from CMU or, or a postdoc, one of the two. So there was just a lot of good, I mean, I would highly recommend anyone to go find, just, just Google um, Future of Decentralization and AI Computing Summit at Berkeley and check out like the YouTube links because there are a lot of different good talks. I could go a while on, on the on high level on the topics. They also had this cool thing where there's this thing called Block Berkeley Blockchain Accelerator. And so they had people demo their startups, right? Uh, do like one minute pitches to people so that investors could talk. I think the only issue with that is that because they put it last, a lot of the investors had left. Like at that point, it was mostly like Berkeley students and like people interested in technology because you can't expect someone to be there like all eight, nine hours, right? But otherwise, like phenomenal, phenomenal event. Yeah. So that high, high level. Yeah. No, it, it looks like they did post the videos. And actually, I'll, I'll throw the, uh, the link uh, to the URL to the site in the, in the show notes. But it looks yes, like they did should. post a link to the talks and also some of those lightning talks towards the end, mm -hmm. which I agree is like a really interesting sort of ground level community feel of what people are really interested in in an event like that. And it's interesting, you know, to see some of these big tech providers in a decentralization context, talking about distributed ML and creative things they're doing. Mm -hmm. Do you think, does the, does the Web3 space need to use different words versus decentralization? If you talk about some of these like traditional tech players that are doing interesting distributed work, that it's not involved in crypto, or does it matter? Does the door decentralization need to mean anything different? Yeah, I think between those so there, there's a lot of things that decentralized means. I do think that when we talk to people at these events or when I talk to people at these events, we, we as in the group of people in the conversation, make it clear what the difference between decentralization and distributed means in the aspect of compute. Because decentralized compute and distributed compute are actually two different things, right? And, and, but they can also mean the same thing. So there's the possibility that decentralization and distributed compute mean the same thing, but most of the time they mean different things. And depending on the person, you don't know. So generally what we do is if we realize we're saying different things, we're like, okay, hey, let's define what decentralization means for this conversation. And let's, let's define what distribu distributed compute means for this conversation. And then it makes it a lot easier to have similar language to talk to each other. But, but basically like, yeah, they, I, I think we need the word decentralization and we need the word distributed. I would just say like, if you're having a conversation about distributed and decentralized compute, just define it with whomever, whomever you're talking to, because they, they could mean the same thing or they could mean very different things. So like, you know, when I think about decentralized compute, I think about something being decentralized, whether it is the nodes, whether it's the compute providers, whether it's, you know, the economic model about, right? When I think about distributed compute, distributed compute can mean like, let's take a simple example with um, training large language models, because this is a, it was an AI summit as well. Distributed compute can mean like, okay, well, what these, what these big companies do at the, these di giant data centers is they connect lots and lots of GPUs, right? On multiple, on multiple servers. And then they connect all those servers and any, everything is connected through fiber optic cable. So it's like speed of light, right? And then when they talk about distributed compute, they talk about distributing compute across multiple GPUs all in the same data center, right? So that is one form of distributed compute. Another form of distributed compute is distributing it across GPUs across the world and then doing some computation and bringing the results back, right? 
in the, in that example, you're distributing the compute on decentralized decentralized location. The location is decentralized. Whereas when we talk it talk about it from a big data center perspective, the the location is not decentralized. It's in one data center. So that's how you know. Those are some examples of how decentralized and distributed compute can actually mean different things. But but we but the conference had talks about like distributed, de- decentralized, decentralized and distributed you know, verification of compute. A lot of it was actually focused on like, how do you build an environment where you build a decentralized compute protocol where the, where the data center is decentralized? What that means is, or the, where the GPUs are decentralized. So there were a lot of top talks, like assuming like that was the scenario. And then they had, you know, like they had different talks. Um, so there were multiple talks on verification. How do you make sure that the compute is, you know, verified and no one's committing fraud, um, which were super useful uh, or just interesting to learn. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of good talks at the Berkeley one. Um, Very nice. Sounds like a yeah. strong showing. Any other yeah. like events before or after SBC that, that you attended? I think there was one around like the science of consensus that Sunday as well at Berkeley. I didn't have a chance to attend that one, but I think there were maybe I didn't a few make that, other, but I made something called Edge it- in- Intelligence last Friday. So it wasn't actually part of SBC, but it was it was like a decentralized compute and again a, a decentralized compute and AI summit one day one day conference right with multiple people talking about again very similar topics. Actually, I think one person gave the same exact talk they gave at Berkeley at Edge Intelligence, and I'm not going to say who it is, but. It, their, by the way, their talk was great. Uh, I really, I really liked it. But it, it was the same talk, right? Because it was basically like it, the, the topics were exactly the same. So for anyone who missed the Sunday one and made it to Edge Intelligence, like you, you could have learned a lot of the same things. I found the Berkeley one a little bit too big, and I don't remember. Yeah, I guess pe- maybe people had name tags, but they didn't ask people to put name tags, and so like you didn't know who you were talking to un- until you spoke to them which I kind of prefer actually, because I hate it when people go to a conference and they're like, oh, I'm only going to look for someone who has like a VC, you know, like a VC on their tag, or I'm looking for specific companies. And I'm like, these are all people. And like, when it comes to networking, people always think about like value, right? Or how, like, is this person useful? And like, the thing is that it's not great to think of like conversations as useful or not. But like, even in a world where like, okay, time is constrained, you're an investor or you're a startup founder or whatever, and you're looking to, you're looking to like do something, right? Like you don't actually know who's going to help you and who's not, right? So like to go to sit there and be like, this person is not useful because they don't have a VC on their, on their name tag or whatever. Like just for example, like I met someone at multiple AI events. And I was like, oh, maybe they'll turn into a customer. Maybe they won't. At the third time I met them, they introduced me to someone who ended up not like, you know, potentially turning into a customer, but also like someone that I turned it, could turn into like friends with. Also, another person actually introduced me to Dawn. So another person I'd met three times at an at a AI startup. We were at the same event and... Don was at that event and then Don came up to that guy and he was like, you guys should talk. And then we became <laughs> friends. So, you know, it's like yep. you never, I don't like the whole, like this person doesn't hold value because they don't fit the type of person that I'm looking for. Um, exactly. It's like karma. Yeah. It's like networking or community karma or something yeah. like, you know, I, I remember being the new guy walking into 
different conferences where I didn't know anybody before and trying to strike up a conversation just to figure out what's going on. And people were nice. Hey, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say hello, give you the time of day. And I think if you pay it forward, it just makes, it says a lot about that community and mm -hmm. some communities in fairness, like I think this environment where it's more academic, it's easier to do that. Not all communities are as open or as like w w well intentioned, but I yeah. think you're exactly right. In these situations, you have to kind of be a part of the team, play it forward and, and have conversations with people you may not know, or that, you, that may not, you know, directly put money in your pocket. Okay. So I'm going to make a small announcement because I'm sure people have figured it out already, but I'm, I just started a company. So this is where my experience is coming from. I'm going to keep what we're doing in stealth. We are still in stealth, <laughs> but. I am a founder, which is why I've been going to a lot of founder events. And so like, you'll hear me say some, like some, some of these things, which is why I don't like when other founders are like, oh, I'm only going to meet this person if they're a VC, because it's like, one, I don't think you should, you know, put a usefulness on a person based on like, you know, what they do, but also like you, you never know where help will come from, right? Like I made a friend from a person that I thought was not a customer, but I just like talking to him. And so like three, three, you know, con three meetings, three different AI events. And then we, then because I'd built that relationship and spoke to this person every single time, he was like, oh, you should talk to this guy, by the way, which would never have happened if I'd been like after the first one, oh, he's not going to be a customer. So I shouldn't talk to him again. Right. Like, so true. So true. So true. It's all part of it. Well, okay. We're going to wait with bated breath to find out what comes out of self mode, but <laughs> yes. When people can start applying, let us know and we will show it on yeah, the podcast. <laughs> Very cool. Now I feel bad. A few weeks ago, Wes, I was like, you can't show your new job, but then we're going to show this. So I, I take that back. You can show your new job. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, it was actually funny. So I felt like the, the, the popular person at, at the conference now, because the company that I started working for recently has generated a lot of news and awareness in the, in the blockchain space. And so as I was walking in wearing the shirt, the logo for my company, it was much easier to meet people, which was a fun, <laughs> a fun outcome, an anticipated scenario. But no, so, sort of like the opposite of, of your of your story. I was able to join at least the first three days of SBC, which I guess it was only a three day summit. Anyways, it was on Stanford campus, beautiful campus, super fun place to hang out. They had the event in the alumni um, area, which was a series of buildings. It had a big auditorium. And it was just like you mentioned, it was mostly academic focused. There was, I think, only one vendor with a booth in the entire event. And it was mostly about people presenting their papers during the sessions, but also a lot of networking on the side. People mm -hmm. were super friendly. I had a number of people come up to me even when I didn't have my company's logo and just say, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Just want to say hello and just meet people in the space. I think it was just a generally well-intentioned conversation. A lot of, lot of deep topics around Ethereum research, primarily, it seemed, even though the name of the conference was Stanford Blockchain Conference. Most of it revolved around Ethereum. It involved topics like roll-ups, uh, smart contract security, MEV, maximum extractable value techniques for, for Ethereum. Uh, I didn't see a ton of Solana. I saw a little bit of Cosmos folks, uh, kind of IBC folks. I didn't see a ton of uh, Polkadot activity, although there could have been. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting group. And, and overall, it was, it, was, it was great to meet. We met a lot of customers and prospects along the way, and, and it was helpful. It was good to get a, a pulse on what's going on in the community. Did, was I was at SPC last year. 
Was it like the same where there are like a lot of people in the conference and then there are also like a lot of people outside just chatting and not really there for the talks? Okay. So yes. I yes. Most definitely. There were a few, you could tell there were the, the fervent supporters who were locked into the, the, comp, the, the conference spaces that were asking questions, challenging questions, especially during, there were a few, I would say like, there's this Ethereum intelligentsia, some might say, which are sort of the most influential people in the Ethereum community. One is Dankrad Feist, who's involved in proto-dank sharding, this big Ethereum improvement that's coming up soon. So for his talk, it was a packed room. There was no seats left available in the house. But a lot of the other time, it was, it was exactly as you mentioned. There were some people in the, the room seeing the live presentation. There were a lot of people hanging out outside, VCs, founders, typical, typical networking. Okay, very cool. So Berkeley, the conference at Berkeley was very much different where like there were very few people hanging out outside when the talks were happening. Most people were inside and then like they had a lot more breaks and in the breaks, people would go outside and chat. Mm -hmm. And I think as the hours went on, there were more people chatting outside because like it's really hard to sit and listen for like, you know, presentations for, for eight hours or six hours or whatever. But but yeah, so and I remember at, at like Stanford Blockchain last year, right, like I basically did not listen. I, on Monday, I listened to the talks. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, I just hung out outside. I didn't really go in because, yeah. yeah. Mostly what I do at these conferences is unless I'm looking to learn something specific, like I look at the agenda, I know the YouTube videos will be out and I'll listen to it at like 1.5 and I'll go talk to people and just kind of, you know, hang out and have fun, make connections and, you know, listen to what people are working on. Because I think a lot of people have cool stories that you would not, that I would never get a chance to meet if they weren't, if they didn't just show up randomly at, at a conference. That's exactly it. Now that everything's being recorded, it's almost like the talks themselves are just kind of the, the appetizer to get folks mm -hmm. there. But really the thing that's hard to reproduce to your point is those personal connections. Yeah, I agree. And like, I think, I think people want, I think even the conference people want that, like the who organized the conference. Cause like you could just do a virtual conference where people talk, but like that's not, people don't show up for those, right? I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but like everyone that I've spoken to is like, oh yeah, like I'm not going to listen to someone talk on my Zoom for like 40 or whatever, 15, even 15 minutes because there's so much content out there anyway, right? Like you could be on YouTube and just learn something similar or or, or something completely different that, that piques your interest. Um, so it is really about, I think a lot of the people really do care about like, let's meet new people, let's hang out, let's, you know, converse and learn something that I want to learn from watching a video online. So true. And the other interesting piece of that are side events, after events. There mm -hmm. were a few, we, we participated in a few community events that were happening after the conference. It was sort of educational, informational. And then you and I got to catch up at some after events, some happy yeah. hours. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think in general of these like after events, parties, side events, whatever, you know, happy hours? I think it is, is it's really up to who, to, to the organizers to make it in, in, a, in a variety of different scenarios. For example, there was one community event that was in a small setting. It was mostly informational. There were a few folks that were leading the conversation and it was maybe 20 or 30 folks in a room and it was an active dialogue about some new security measure that's going to go on into Ethereum. There were some others that were much more anonymous that were, hey, we're going to hang out, have some drinks, show up, you know, meet people. And it's very loose, like, like socialization. And just kind of everything in between. What what did you see? Yeah, I I I went to a bunch actually. I signed up for like five. Ended up going to three over Monday and Tuesday. So there were some. It was interesting because I was like the first day I went to one that was hosted by VCs, 
And I felt like they, they actually gated people, which was interesting because I think it was like a big VC. So I think they just got too many people who wanted to get on, get off the wait list. Right. And it was still super full. And this was on Monday night and I had a fabulous time just talking to people. I did end up running into VCs, but I actually didn't go there because a lot of VCs were going to be there. I went there because it was, I had multiple people tell me that like, this is just considered a high quality event. And I'm not really sure what people meant by like, it's just a high quality event. I just, I assume it means like not a lot of Stanford students, like no offense to Stanford students, <laughs> like, you know, you want. You're, I think most people are looking to talk to like other people in the industry so that they can like learn something or do a deal or a VC, right? And yeah, uh, that quality metric is critical. Yeah. You got to get the quality. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't, I still, it, it, it's debatable at times what quality means, but yeah, I don't know. it exists. Like, I, so figure it out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I think quality means a whole bunch of things to different people, but I had multiple people being like, this is going to be a high quality event. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I should probably go to something where multiple people have told me it's going to be quote a high quality event. That's it. That's it. Um, you don't want to be in a low quality. You want to get there and like, welcome to the low quality event. That's not <laughs> where you want to be. No. And then we chilled at the fun.xyz launch happy hour, which was a great, was a great happy hour. So, so that, that yes. was, that was, that was a I ended cool. up having a really good conversation from a guy from Block Native who was working on one of the Ethereum validator clients at that, in that yeah. event. And it was really interesting to hear sort of their experience. I think it was Prism, maybe, or Light Lighthouse. I forget the client, but it was some like core, like Ethereum related developer. And yeah, I mean, it's just more folks to meet there in the space. So it's all yeah. goodness. And that part, if you, then that event was like pretty full, right? I mean, there was, it was full enough where you could talk to anyone, but not so full where you're like, oh, there are too many people here. Like, I feel like my personal space is being invaded, right? So it was actually like the perfect amount of people showed up to that one. Yes, yes, absolutely. It is a balance. Uh, it's delicate balance there. And uh, and the drinks there were good. So that that was that was great. Um, well, put it on yeah. the calendar. We'll go back next yeah. year. Yeah, exactly. You I think those are the only thing. two. Actually, I I only went to, and then I went to one after that on on. Uh, Tuesday night but like that was at like 9.15 and like I think going to events at 9.15 like people were there were like a lot of people were leaving while I was entering just because it's like 9.15 is late right like I think because there were two events at the same time I was like okay well this one is emptying out so I should go to the next one but that was also emptying out because like people want to go back you know like they're finishing up dinner go back rest and then wake up for the next day so um, which is good because out of 40 you know like yeah yeah, I like a. There's a long I went days. and then I went home, and then it was like 11:45 by the time I got home because I live 45 minutes away, and then like, yeah, and then I was like exhausted, and then the next day, I I slept like eight, I slept like nine hours on Tuesday night. After like basically on Monday and Tuesday, what we did is that we got to like our offices in a WeWork, so we worked till like 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. or something, and then went to the event, and then same thing. I worked, we met for lunch. I worked, then I went to the event and I got home. Both both nights I ended up home at like 11.30, 11.45 and I was so tired both days. And I was like, okay, Wednesday, I need to like sleep in a little bit. Yes, that's a lot. That's a lot to catch up on. But hey, that's 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 the founder lifestyle. You yeah. Know? yeah. It'll, it'll all be worth it when we're, you know, doing this podcast on your yacht in a few years. <laughs> The decentralized I, I will be yacht. so happy if in 10 years I have like a massive yacht. 
Well, funny enough, I'm actually not a yacht person. Like when people are like, people are like, oh, like Bezos has like whatever, like yacht. Like I'm like, I don't want to be, I mean, I like the water, but I don't love the water enough to be like, oh, I want to be on a yacht. Like, you know, I'd rather be in like, I don't know, a super nice hotel in Italy or something like that. You know, looking over Lake Como. Well, that's a great move too. I like that even yeah. better. I'm just thinking of, of Shamath doing his yeah. podcast from his yacht with the, the sounds yeah. of the the staff like interrupting him. You know, it's kind of a baller move. But yeah, if you can be yeah. over Lake Cuomo, that's not a bad move either for middle yeah. Well, should we should we chit chat about some of the news going on? The Coinbase? Yeah, a lot of new news. All right. Maybe, do you want to kick us off with some of the, the context here? I think the first topic is Coinbase and their revenue streams from their L2. Yeah, okay. I think in general, I didn't think, we didn't speak about this, but Coinbase released an L2. So like, Wes, you've been saying L2 summer, right? Like we spoke about CeeLo moving to Ethereum or proposing to move to Ethereum, right? And and others in L2 summer, but now we have Coinbase. I think their L2 is called Base, right? That's actually, yes. yeah. So Coinbase has released a L2 on Ethereum called Base. And it is already, I think this is old news, so it might be bigger or smaller than this, but it is the fifth largest layer two blockchain on the Ethereum network. And it and it released in Jul- end of July, I think, or early August, right? So within, let's just say two months, it has already become the fifth largest layer two blockchain by total value locked, also known as TBL. Do you know how, I don't actually know what the exact use case of base is. Is it, is it actually to make transactions faster? Is it like a optimistic or a ZK rollup type of that, uh, layer two? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I was just checking, there's a website, l2beat.com. It looks like they just moved up since this last article was posted. They just surpassed DYDX to get the fourth place in terms okay. of most TVL locked. But you're right. They're an optimistic roll-up. So basically, they're implementing a similar architecture as Optimism and Arbitrum, which means people will post transactions onto base, their L2 roll-up, and they have to bridge tokens. It's almost like a separate blockchain entirely. <laughs> and then occasionally, base as L2 roll-up will write evidence back to Ethereum validating that your transactions are being carried out properly. And if, and if you ever feel like a transaction was not carried out properly on the L2 rollup, you can submit a fraud, a fraud uh, proof back to uh, Ethereum and you can contest that there was a, a transaction. So it's, so it's sort of like assuming that everything's going to be done properly on the, the L2 versus like a ZK sync rollup. But the interesting thing about base is because they have so much a large user base for their centralized exchange, people that want to interact with to your point, lower transaction fees and higher throughput can do so on base. And then if I'm a person, let's say I, I, I want to buy some crypto, I want to buy some ETH or, or Uniswap token or something else, and I want to swap tokens and engage in some DeFi trading, I can do that on base natively. They're not going to charge you additional cost to move it from Ethereum to base. It's just right there. I can move right there. And what an amazing stroke, a brilliant stroke for them, because now not only are they making a user or an easier user experience for their end users, they're also receiving all these fees and revenue from those users who are interacting on their L2. That those, those transaction fees go directly to Coinbase. Yeah. So it's a revenue builder as well. Do you think there are any legal or regulatory exposures for Coinbase running an L2? 
I, they have I to contend with? I don't know because I don't know how decentralized it is, right? Like you can talk about like, are the nodes decentralized on base? If the nodes are decentralized, but the like, does the, does the money actually go directly to like this protocol revenue actually go to Coinbase? Do you know? It does. It okay. does. Okay. I believe it does now currently because they run the sequencers, which are like the, the nodes I effectively okay. in the L2. Although they've talked about opening up and decentralizing the sequencers on their network, which is a common ambition for a lot of L2s right, right now to further decentralize, but might take a little bit I of mean, time. I mean, I'm a big believer in the progress of decentralization. Like sometimes people are like, oh, like base isn't sufficiently decentralized, but it's like, do you have a plan to get there, right? Like it's interesting because if you've never seen a public company or even just like as big of a crypto company as Coinbase, be like, let me, let me launch a layer two, right? So like, I'm interested to see like, okay, even if it becomes decentralized, like, will they still make money from it? Like, will trans transaction fees still go? I mean, there's twofold, right? It's good for Coinbase one from a revenue perspective, but more than that, like, I think their vision is to get 1 billion, pe like, isn't it part of the master plan or whatever? It's like 1 billion people onto crypto, like onboard 1 billion people. So like, even if they progressively decentralize and don't make that money, don't make that much money from base, if base brings on more people, right? Then like there's going to be more people using centralized exchanges, right? If, if base is like a superior product and, and the technology is better enough that like it makes it easier for other developers to be like, oh, I'm going to use base as my layer two for like transactions to build applications. And those, and those developers are bringing in users, whether they're already crypto users or non-crypto users to crypto or to, yeah, to crypto, it'll help Coinbase in the long run with just with their centralized exchange uh, business. And also all the other businesses that Coinbase runs, right? Like lending and whatever. I don't know if they do lending, but, but staking yeah. and, and no, everything you're else, absolutely right? right. Yeah, it was funny because they had some promotions the past month that we're talking about. They, they call it like a, a base summer or it was on-chain. On-chain summer is what they called it for their oh, kind yeah. of promoting their, their base launch. And they were talking about a lot of net new use cases, which is, putting your photos on chain, doing your social media on chain. So they're trying to promote all these different use cases that require higher throughput. And it's a, it's a funny chicken and egg, you know, speaking of entrepreneurs in the, in the blockchain space, because many people building aren't aware that they can get lower costs and higher throughput on a blockchain like mm -hmm. base. So they just kind of, you know, write it off. Like I talked to another person who was doing a, a database service on chain. And it's just, I think it's just going to take time for these solutions to exist, these L2 rollups and the awareness to, kind of permeate the the web three infrastructure ecosystem and then people will hopefully start building some fun new applications on these rollups like base yeah did you see the coinbase announcement oh my god i'm trying to find it brian armstrong wrote like a letter about like coinbase venture summit and then like a bunch of stuff that he was interested in learning about i cannot find that link but basically, Brian Armstrong wrote about like, oh, these are like some of the things that we'd love to see. I would love to, he, he literally wrote a blog post maybe and he's like, I would love to see these kinds of companies be built. And then like, you know, if, if somebody's building these types of companies, like applying, apply to Coinbase Venture Summit and like, we might be interested in funding you based on traction, et cetera. And so like a lot of that stuff was around like DeFi, but also like NFTs and, and other things. And I'm sure like a lot of these things, like if, if you can take advantage base, like they'll be more interested in, in funding it, but like it all helps with the big, like big push to get more and more users onto web three native applications or blockchain. 
that's it. Onboarding the next billion users. Yeah. Well, they've got a good shot as, as anyone. It just shows also that they're, I think, uh, in tune with what's going on with the more advanced uh, crypto use cases. They could just mm -hmm. sit back and be a centralized business and not make any major changes. And I think it shows a lot of progressiveness in the company, a lot of eagerness and ambition to grow. Yeah. Um, and just remaining at the forefront of the technology. So they're being a good steward in the space by launching it. I think it also shows that Brian Armstrong cares about moving crypto forward and having developers or people create applications that like use blockchain or crypto in the back end, but have great user experiences. And so like, I think that's very different. I mean, I don't like comparing him to SBF or Coinbase to FTX, but it invariably does happen because both were running, both are, are centralized exchanges. And it's like completely different where, you know, Coinbase has regular audits. They publish everything publicly, right? They don't, they don't use customer funds for lending, customer deposits for lending. And FTX did all like the opposite of, of what Coinbase is doing. And like, there's like a lot of hype around SPF about like, oh, he's going to push crypto forward, all of that. But really it's, Brian Armstrong and Coinbase who are putting an effort to push crypto forward through venture funding, through blog posts, through building layer twos, right? And et cetera. So it's just not about like collecting fees from being a centralized exchange or centralized exchange is a good business because crypto will grow. Indeed. I think, I think history will remember them well versus some of their contemporaries like FTX. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then I guess the other big thing with Coinbase was that they acquired a minority stake in Circle, and Circle is the one who came up with U, U the stablecoin, right? USDC. Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's a big deal. USDC is gaining a popularity. I think Tether is the only largest stablecoin by market cap right now. USDC led by Jeremy Allaire, smart group of folks, and they're very activists in the space. They're you know very involved from a regulatory perspective, trying to promote stablecoins in, in the space. And then also, I think just a couple of days ago, interesting announcement, speaking of the non-Ethereum space, USDC and Solana announced a major partnership with Visa to process uh, cross-border payments. Yes. How yes. about that? I was just, I saw that this morning or last night, and I was going to bring that up. So it looks like Circle is doing well for itself. But they also dissolved their consortium, right? Uh -huh. And so like there are a group of people who came together and like, you know, now it's just Circle with like other investors who run USDC. And they, I think, I think now they went from nine blockchains to this port 15 blockchains, right? But at the same time, it's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it went from like a little bit more open to a little bit more closed because it went from a consortium to like a company with a bunch of investors or something like that. Interesting. You know, the other interesting thing that's going on with USDC is there's a lot of trepidation they have about being potentially brought under litigation from the SEC. In fact, their CEO has been very vehemently, openly asking for dialogue with the SEC to avoid being targeted because there's a lot of fears that being a major stablecoin provider, there are interests in the Congress that do not want U.S. stablecoins to exist outside of, let's say, the Fed having their own stablecoin or their own, right. you know, federal digital currency. So do you think that the dissolution of that organization that they had previously and into just the corporation itself was to mitigate some of those risks? Or do you think maybe it was just unrelated? 
Maybe, though I would have thought it would be the opposite. I feel like the more open, it could be the other people left because they thought this was coming, but I would have thought like, you know, the more open it is, the 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 less you get into trouble because there's one big, like one big company owning it. On the other hand, it's like the opposite of what happened with Libra then, right? Like Libra became this consortium of like 30 people came up to create like a real world asset tokenized stable coin or real world asset token. Maybe it was not a stable coin and like the SEC killed it, right? So it could be, I, I don't know, it could be either. But like, you know, I don't understand what these guys are doing because like on the other hand, like Visa and MasterCard just ex- in, uh, increased fees again, right? <laughs> and Americans pay more in credit card fees than anyone else in the world. For what? They're a middleman for payments to go through on 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 like using stable coin. If you use stable coins, right, and then convert it to dollar, your fees would be literally like 99 or like what it would be 1% of what you're paying with, with MasterCard or Visa. So like, you know, Congress really needs to get their act together because like there's a clear technological improvement that can help save merchants and like human beings, like consumers, like you and I, lots and lots of money for MasterCard and Visa. Like it's like an old technology. They don't provide any value anymore. You know, you're so right. Well, the other interesting thing, so in my in a former life, having sold technology to companies like FIS, NCR, Global Payments, these sort of larger back-end processors that partner with Visa and MasterCard to actually fulfill the payments at the point of sale was to see how much Visa and MasterCard have a monopoly. Visa, MasterCard, American Express have a monopoly over the point of sale systems so that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go and you use any of these, you know, in a vendor, you're going to buy something. Or if you go through like Stripe through a, a website, then you pay, you know, using your credit card, they, they've, they've more or less enshrined that process, both like practically, but also in a regulatory perspective that you have to go through Visa and MasterCard. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how, it, one, on one aspect, it's like, how do you get rid of the middleman? But on the other hand, it's like, how do you get different point of sale systems in front of the customer so that they could accept them? Or maybe you just ambiguate through like the online purchasing process and have it go through. I mean, a, even if you just did credit, like a credit card is an information store that's connected to your bank, Right. And then what MasterCard and Visa do is like they, they look at how tr- or the banks look at how trustworthy you are and MasterCard and Visa take like essentially a middleman fee. Right. Why do you need MasterCard and Visa when any point of sale system could you could have like a crypto credit card. Right. But like it doesn't it's not actually like whatever. It's just a card that says like I have this money in my bank account and like I'm going to use USDC. Like I'm going to use stable coins. And no one is going to pay 3% or 4% or 5%, right? And like we save so much, we, we use crypto transactions and then there's no middleman Visa and MasterCard because it's not even like they do the fraud, right? If, if something like something like fraud happens, like I guess with Amex, they're the bank and they're the credit card. So it's different. But like, you know, at the end of the day, it's like the banks who are dealing with it on the back end too. Yes. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the biggest irony of crypto in general was the the initial white paper was Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer cash payments, peer-to-peer payment system for digital cash. And even though Bitcoin ended up doing a lot of good things for store value, I don't buy my clothes at the store mm-hmm. using Bitcoin. That that never materialized. And there were it'll a lot of companies happen. that were trying to make it happen. And it'll have to be a stable coin, right? No one wants to lose like upside. They treat, everyone treats Bitcoin as an asset. 
I mean, this is why I think like I'm very much in the camp that CBDCs are good. And as long as they're built properly, I think the one advantage of crypto is that like there's no gov governments can't go and read all transactions, but you can. Everything is settled on blockchain, right? So it's not like it's not really that different. And it's pretty easy. Like people have proved it's pretty easy, especially like with KYC becoming a big thing, which is good if you like have a wallet, you do your KYC, you know, like some company knows your address, right? Your, your wallet address, and you start doing transactions. As soon as it goes on the blockchain, people like uh, the, the US government can go do the analysis, be like, I need these wallet addresses. Who are they? You did the KYC. It's the same thing. It's not like CBDCs are gonna, you know, have some sort of new privacy issues that, that, you, that you can't do today because everybody wants to not break securities law, or why in overstate wire fraud laws or stuff like that, right? But yeah, I would, I would love, I would love. I at one point I wanted to start a company that would like, if I could do a consumer version of crypto of Mastercard and Visa to like take away how much fees they they take from merchants. It is ridiculous. Absolutely, absolutely. The opportunity is still there. No one's figured yeah. it out. Well, hey, no if, one's you, figured if you out. have spare time, look, Elon started two companies at once, so <laughs> he could so do it. You can if yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm I, I'm glad that someone thinks that I I could be at Elon's level, even though that would probably <laughs> never happen in my lifetime. You could totally help, but maybe a third. We'll see. We'll see what other projects you can you can put on your plate in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, in 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 it seems like we're giving out billion dollar ideas every week now, right? So someone please go start this and, and take down take take those fees away that exists. I, I know a lot of people who run restaurants and, and stuff. So it's just like, it's really hard more on the merchants than anyone because they pay like three, four, 5%. You know, it's insane. You're right. We may have to start a DFI podcast bounty board for people to sign up <laughs> yeah. and pay yeah. us back. Well, Sean, should we wrap it for today? Uh, yeah, actually, let's talk about it. Since we're on stable mm -hmm. coins, let's talk about PayPal and then wrap it. Let's do it. Yeah. So PayPal. So PayPal also just released a stable coin, right? So that was, that was big news. So it's called PYUSD. Yeah, PYUSD, which is not as cool as USDC, but it'll be backed by like a collection of dollars and, and treasuries and, and basically liquid investments, right? A lot of people are like, oh, but this is just like, and you can use it on, on like the PayPal platform and you can use it anywhere else. But a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a scam because they just put like, they just put the dollars in like treasury bills, right? Make 5% and then like just keep taking the 5% profit while they're running the, the PayPal stable coin. I, I mean, it's like, I think my personal opinion is that it's both like a good way for PayPal to make some 5% money, but also like, like. Now you've got a second U.S. stablecoin by a by a big company, and now the U.S. government has to be like, okay, like, do we want to destroy all the work that these companies are doing, or do we want to support stablecoins? Right, you, like you're, you're absolutely right. It looks like the market cap right now is about forty five million for PYUSD, which places them pretty low on the rankings for crypto market cap. I think it puts them at I can't find a specific number, but that's got to be like five hundred or, or more. For that amount. Yeah, interesting. Unless they have some product integrations that are going to be unique for them. I mean, would you pay through PayPal using PYUSD through their app? So apparently, so this is this is interesting. So th there's a story 
that like basically this person is like, oh, I'm if I go abroad or like I'm let's say like I'm I live in a, a non-US country, right? Like, I don't know, let's take Mexico or whatever, right? Doesn't matter. Bahamas, Europe, whatever. And if I pay with credit card, they have to pay 4% merchant fees, right? But if I pay with PayPal, they still have to pay some percent fees, but not if I pay with PayPal, but they, they don't pay the full, four full percent, they, they, the full, full four percent, they pay whatever like the PayPal fee is because it's basically a wire transfer. So it's like a little bit less, right? But if you use a stable coin, no one pays fees and then, and then PayPal can turn that stable coin into US dollar. So there's actually a real use case for this stable coin. And again, it, it always comes back to cross, it always comes back to transactions or cross-border transactions because like credit card and debit cards are expensive and cross-border transactions are expensive or like for tourists, right? So like, but it comes back to this transaction thing of like, you're able to drive the transaction cost to like 0.001% or something like that. Or, oh, right. interesting. Yeah, you're right. Their website says there's no fee to buy, sell, hold, or transfer PYUSD to eligible U.S. PayPal accounts. So yeah. you're right. I guess it's like cross-border payments through PYUSD. They'll give it to you for free. Yeah. Or like the opposite, right? You're a tourist. You come to America, right? And instead of paying with your credit card, which now you're, if you, if like a lot of credit cards across outside of America actually have a lot higher foreign foreign transaction fee than like credit cards in, in the US, right? Not all, like if you go to Amex, like you don't generally, it doesn't matter. But but like you come to America, you have a PayPal account, right? Instead of paying with your credit card, you can pay with your PayPal account. And like, because you're they're using a stable coin, you don't have to pay any transaction fee. Mm -hmm. Wow. So for tourist transactions, that could save a little lot of money. They pay with PayPal maybe through their app. And then yeah, they just don't have so, to yeah. pay the additional transaction fees. Yeah. Does that get them into like point of sale? Does they get PayPal more to point of sale for for tourists? I mean, I think the the point of sale system is on. Don't they have a? Isn't there a competitor to? Don't they have like a Square competitor business? Like, remember they came out with their triangle thing when Square was four and triangle. Like they they made that reader that was three size and they called it triangle. Being like, oh, yeah, we're... so they have like a square competitor on the yes, point of they sale do. side, Zettel, right? I yeah. think is the name of it. Is that what I'm saying? Right. PayPal Zettle, yeah, something like that. Okay, they have a little terminal, a little little view on it. Okay, okay. yeah. Or but even if people don't have that, but they have a PayPal account, you can just scan the QR code, right? But like in Asia, this is normal. Like in Asia, right? Like in India and in China and everywhere else, you literally have like. 0.4 or 0.1 transaction fee. And because it's all mobile payments and, you know, like, like people use credit card a lot less because it's just so expensive. And you're like, why is America using credit cards? Yeah, you know, I've heard people say in the past that the U.S. is sort of indebted because we were one of the first ones to have credit cards. And so it was like a big advantage in the 70s and 80s. But now it's become more of like baggage for us effectively versus like Asian countries that didn't have to go through that process. And they just started with digital payments more directly. So we, they don't have like the baggage of the infrastructure per se. Yeah, I think but, that's generally yeah. true, by the way, for all technologies. Like I just read about this country in Europe there. I think it was Moldova. It's like, oh, like they didn't have like a super advanced energy system. 
So like now they're installing green energy and it's like a lot easier for them to install green energy because they don't have to deal with all the the old whatever. Like they have one power plant or two power plants in all of Moldova, right? So like if you don't have like that many power plants, it's really easy to start building like new state-of-the-art green energy power generation systems than having to rely on old ones, right? So in general, I think that's true true with technology. Like India basically skipped basically skipped like wired like 3g and went straight to 4g because they when like people were getting online there when we had 3g there wasn't enough people online for like telecom companies to build a lot of infra in india but then a lot of people got online when prices dropped and so like 4g and 5g got built in india like super fast yeah so it's like i I don't know this basically the story pops up everywhere right like we you America in the 70s with credit cards, you know, India with telephones, Moldova with energy. Like I think in general, I think the story you hear, hear this pop up. It's interesting. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it, it pays to not be the uh, first mover. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Second mover has some benefits. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, anything else we should chat about for today? No, I think that's good. We're at time. I got to run soon. Well done. Well done. All right. We can wrap for today. Ishan, pleasure as always. Yes, this was fun. And we'll look forward to uh, SBC again next year. We'll put it on the yes. calendar. Yeah. We'll make that it can't be the thing. next time we meet, though. Has to meet at one of these other crypto conferences. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Much sooner. And maybe a French laundry. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. See you, man. <laughs>